ุทธังธรรมังสังขังนมัสสัง
So having said that, the theme this evening that I would like to pick up is why is it that we think that so many people right now appear to be struggling terribly, appear to not be able to cope with the, the difficulties. And, and I'm not here just talking about people who unfortunately have to use food banks and, and can't afford to put petrol in their car. That's, that's a particular issue right now. However, outside of that, in the Western world, prior to this current cost of living crisis, so many people are struggling enormously. And what's going on there? And one of the things that is very evident is the, the challenge of dealing with the, what seems to be an increasing rate of change. The, the technology has got many advantages and many benefits, and which I'm sure all of us are, are pleased to, to have. However, one of the side effects of technology is this increasing rate of change and, and so many people are struggling to deal with that. And, and having said that though, it's, it's easy to blame technology. It's easy to blame external causes. It's easy to blame this or that political party do we really believe that changing the political party and the ruling at the time, is that really going to solve the suffering? Really? The political parties have been changing for years and did it really resolve the issues? Well, we would all, of course, be aware that the Buddha pointed to wisdom as a solution to our suffering and, and it's uh, very fortunate that we have these teachings that, that encourage us to, to uh, develop our spiritual faculties so that mm, the possibility of insight, of seeing in new ways, of learning new perspectives, learning to reflect in new ways and so that, that there's a possibility of untangling the knots, the, the confusion that we find ourselves in. However, there is an issue with, with this emphasis on the Buddha's teachings on, on wisdom, it seems to me anyway, and particularly in the West, where it's almost as if, it's almost as if we feel like we don't, the Buddha didn't teach about anything else, when in fact he did. The Buddha taught a lot about supportive conditions for the arising of insight. He didn't just talk about how wonderful it is to have insight and the fruit of insight, which is awakening. He didn't just talk about how amazing that is and, and that it's possible. He also talked a lot about the supportive conditions. To always be uh, focusing attention on the idea of the possibility of, of having insight or awakening it seems to me is it's like it's similar to if somebody is really sick and all they do is dwell on the thought of being healthy again. To have a, a 
hopeful, positive disposition to, to aspire to be healthy again, well, of course that has its place. Though obviously, if somebody is sick, also they need to be consulting professionals who understand illness and and listening to what they have to say. Maybe you know, the, if there's suitable medicines being prescribed, and need to find ways of acquiring that medicine and then taking the medicine and, in the right way and and in the right time and regularly and, and then also possibly paying attention to the question of diet and you, know, you may be ill with some condition and you know, like you know, maybe you've got diabetes which are you know, really serious consequences can make you go blind amongst other things and, and the doctor pr- tells you that's well, the issue and you need to be taking insulin and yet you're still you know, munching away on pots of chocolate <laughs> well, maybe you need to be looking at the diet and and changing something on that level. Also, what about exercise? And, yeah. So, if we're sick physically, well, obviously we we know there's more that's required than just dwelling on the thought of being healthy again. Well, likewise, I would suggest that uh, for all of us unawakened human beings, uh, uh, there's more to the spiritual practice than wanting to become wise and, you know, to pay attention to what the Buddha said about these as I was saying these supportive conditions that conduce to progress on the path and, you know, there is some some danger some risk in just you know, fixating on one aspect of these teachings like for instance wisdom and and not paying attention to the emphasis the Buddha put on what is traditionally referred to as um, virtues and the the traditional role of conventional religion over the millennia has been to one of the traditional roles has been to instill virtue in people and and how often do we hear that word these days I was reflecting on this recently have I ever heard anybody use the word virtue recently and well the only time I can recall hearing it is in the pejorative with virtue signaling and that uh, well, that's another thing and I, I don't want to spend time here dwelling on why people might be using that expression or accusing people of virtue signaling rather I do think it's skillful to really really carefully consider what is the consequence of a lack of virtue We know, again, we know the consequence of a lack of a decent diet or like lack of vitamins. If a child grows up without the right sort of vitamin B, then their nervous system doesn't develop. And and that means that basically they're going to really be limited, really limited in life. Or if you have to live in a place on the planet where where there's not a lot of sunshine and as you get older and... and, uh, you can end up short on vitamin D. I, I found this out a few years ago as regular blood tests that my helpful GP did and said, oh, you're definitely deficient in vitamin D and so you've got to do this for the next two or three months. And Well, thank you very much. It was much appreciated. We understand um, the place of you know, how the risks of vitamin deficiency. What about virtue deficiency? 
what about these qualities that we, if we really look at what the great spiritual teachers have taught about, they weren't just teaching about wisdom, they are also talking a lot about gratitude, forgiveness, patience, generosity, kindness, integrity. And is it the case that these virtues are being taught these days? And it seems to me that it's often the case that they're not being taught. And and I, I do think we really need to look at the potential consequences of that. The sense of I that we experience ourselves to be is a convention. It's a, it's something, it's a structure. And sometimes Buddhists pick up the idea of anatta and think the Buddha was saying there's no self. The Buddha didn't say there's no self. He was saying look into this sense of self that we experience ourselves to be. Look into it very carefully. Question it. Is this really this perceived sense of self? Is it a safe identity? To ask those questions. He didn't dismiss the subject of there being a sense of self. And if there is a sense of self, which obviously there is, because if we didn't have one, we'd be psychotic and be in need of a lot of help. And so what is it that makes the sense of self stable? What is it that makes a sense of self strong in a balanced way? What is it that makes the sense of self supple? And I, don't, I don't mean subtle. I mean one can one become over subtle and over sensitive. I mean supple and agile. Well, again, I would. I would suggest this is part of the role of just cultivating virtues and having been brought up myself in a strict uh, Christian family uh, which I, you know, I, could, I could voice some criticisms about some aspects of, of the, that culture. However, I am enormously grateful for the uh, example that I had from my parents. I, mean, I, I can't ever recall my parents telling a lie, ever. And there was once, I remember, my father said something critical about, about another man in our town, just once in all the years I lived with him. He said something critical once, and I can, I can still remember it. It was because I had come home from school, and I had to, part of my homework was to come up with a pun. And I'm not going to tell you what the pun was, but it was, it, my father said, well, you could say this, and it wasn't very polite to somebody else in our local town. And I think my mother reprimanded him for that. That was a great example to have that. And then the stories that I can still remember from the Bible, the stories, for instance, many of you know the story of the prodigal son, that story, that image. What does that do to us? What do we feel when we read that story and reflect about the the son who, who betrayed his father, betrayed his family, and then when he returned home again was forgiven? the loving, forgiving attitude of the Father. Or likewise, the example, the story of of Jesus on the cross when he was being utterly humiliated, horrendous torture. And what was on his mind, he said, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. These other criminals that were being crucified along with him and the, the Roman soldiers who were bickering over his possessions and the people who were throwing abuse at him. He said, forgive them because they're are not properly, not properly informed with the nature of reality. 
forgiveness. We shouldn't underestimate, or if we do underestimate, it's unfortunate the value of being told these stories and these images, particularly in the formative years of life. And, and, and what those stories teach us, the structures, the effect that that has on the conventional sense of self, the stability, the strength, that means that when the vicissitudes of life threaten to overwhelm us, there is something that sustains us. There's like a reservoir that can be drawn upon. Likewise, in the Buddha's teachings, and you read the scriptures, there's lots of stories and examples of these same sort of virtues and the encouragement to to recognize their value, like the, the story of that, that woman who lost her child, the child died, and, and she was so beside herself with grief. Kiss her, go to me. And she was so beside herself with grief that she couldn't put the child down, and, and eventually she was advised to go and see the Buddha, and the Buddha gave her some advice and said he could help her if she was able to come back with a, a cup of mustard seed. Many of you will know the story. And however, this cup of mustard seed must be from a house where nobody has died. And so off she went to find the cup of mustard seed. And of course, eventually, it dawned on her that this pain, this terrible pain of the loss of a loved one, is something that all human beings experience. And then that compassionate realization that we're all in this together, we all suffer. We all suffer. And that realization, she was freed from the, the painful burden of, of self-obsession. This is not to criticize somebody who's, who's feeling grieving. However, it's, it's tragic if we get obsessed by the pain of life, like grief of loss of a loved one. So the teachings that help us learn to find a way of surviving the onslaughts of life's difficulties... The story of Devadatta, again, many of you will probably be familiar with it, this, uh, the Buddha's cousin, I think it was, and, and he went forth. Uh, he was from a respected family, and, and however, he, he found himself in a situation where, where the other monks were receiving more praise and, and appreciation than he was, and the, the rich supporters would, would visit the monastery and they'd be asking, where's this monk, where's that monk? And nobody was asking, where's Devadatta? And, he got offended and and was feeling left out and and unfortunately in, instead of approaching it skillfully he his mind went off into an unwholesome direction and he started coming up with devious means for attracting appreciation and praise and and it went all the way through to where he even approached the Buddha at one stage and I think it was a it was a the Buddha was giving teachings when I think King Bimbisara was there and, and this uh, Devadatta monk approached the Buddha and said, well, you're so old now and you could probably do with a break and, and I suggest that you hand over leading the community to me, leading this community, leading the Sangha. I can become the head of the Sangha. And, and the Buddha was aware of how Devadatta was basically just looking for praise and, and gain and, and feeding on it. Well, three times it happened, Devadatta asked, and on the third time the Buddha 
referred to him as this curious turn of phrase, a lickspittle, which means somebody who feeds on that which other people spew out. The wise beings spit out this, and, and you're feeding on it, Devadatta. And certainly uh, put Devadatta in his place. And his feeding on praise and gain is unbecoming, unsuitable, and something that all human beings at some stage need to learn that lesson. Otherwise, we can make serious mistakes. And where do we get this information from? Well, these very stories, these very illustrations, and these virtues that, if they are rightly taught, and by that I mean skillfully taught, not out of intimidation, out of fear, it's one of the risks, like even, even in this contemplation mentioning the word virtue might for some people uh, trigger perceptions of of having been intimidated and shamed into supposedly behaving themselves better and that that's not skillful that's not going to work to dismiss the place of the cultivation of virtues that's a great loss to try and encourage people to cultivate virtues in ways that are not skillful and not caring. That's a great loss. What the Buddha wanted was for us to reflect on the place of these virtues and to value them and to understand them. So from a place of understanding to see that we can do something about that. We can cultivate patience. We can cultivate gratitude. We can cultivate generosity. And in so doing, this conventional sense of self that we experience ourselves to be is strengthened and can grow in stability and, and grow in agility, equip us better so that when we encourage serious difficulties in life, there's a reservoir of ability that we can draw upon. However, it is very important in in reflecting on the subject that we're not merely we're not merely approaching it conceptually. The philosophical argument about the benefits of gratitude, if it's merely a conceptual argument, we could probably come up with some reasons for why we shouldn't do it, or forgiveness, you know, or or generosity, maybe convince ourselves, oh, if you're generous, then it's just people take advantage of you. The encouragement is to consider these principles by way of feeling through them. Yes, we initially, we pick them up conceptually. And, And then to inquire, how does it feel if we meet somebody who's generous? How do we feel we meet somebody who has the stability of equanimity, how do we feel if we meet somebody who demonstrates uh, gratitude? How does that affect us? So this is not just thinking about it. We need to feel our way into this investigation. And Something, for instance, like generosity. Actually, what's going on with generosity? Well, generosity is a it's a counterforce for the self-obsession. When we give something away, if we're giving something, 
we're losing something. We don't have something anymore, we're giving it away. And what is the effect of that? Part of what we're giving away is that tight contraction of self-obsession. You can't be totally self-obsessed and be giving at the same time. Mm. Or forgiveness. What actually is forgiveness? Mm. Again, it may be possible to come up with an argument for why forgiveness is not a good idea. However, in, in reality, actually, if we don't have forgiveness, what have we got? We burden of pain, of resentment and, and bitterness. And so reflecting on forgiveness, not merely telling ourselves that we should like somebody or feeling kindly towards somebody who, who we feel wounded us. We need to get more subtle on that and, and maybe we can arrive at the recognition that forgiveness is not about forgetting the pain, rather it's learning how to see we've got a choice whether we're going to invest ill will in that memory or not. Developing our faculties to see that there is potentially that choice to add ill will to the memory. Do I want to keep dwelling on ill will? What does that feel like? It hurts. It stinks. It's awful. Ill will. Do I really want to live my life possessed by ill will? But that person did this. I will you. Maybe they did do that. However, do we have to invest ill will in that? Or is there a choice in that? And what is the result of not investing ill will in painful memories? Maybe that's something like what forgiveness is. Or contentment. In the discourse the Buddha gave to the first nun, the first bhikkhuni, bhikkhuni Mahapajapati, he gave these different qualities of this is Dhamma, this is not Dhamma. And, and um, the last five of that were modesty, contentment, frugality, effort and solitude. Modesty, contentment, frugality, effort and solitude. These virtues, these qualities are things to be cultivated. And, and if we merely think about modesty and contentment, intellectually, conceptually, maybe we could persuade ourselves that you know, it's not a good idea. If you're contented, then you're not being motivated to do anything. The world's such a mess, we should be really out there trying to change things. Well, there's a point to that. However, if we haven't got contentment, what we have got is discontentment. And if we're always coming from a place of discontentment, then there's a risk that our discernment, our intelligence is compromised. We're always feeling stirred up and discontented. We're not seeing clearly. So we need to look more subtly, more carefully into what really is contentment. Actually, what is contentment? Actually, not just conceptually. Right? If you're sitting like I was the other day at the local GP clinic and waiting for my blood test, and, and I arrived a bit early and, and it's just sitting there, and nobody's calling me in and I'm sitting there and sitting there and saying, well, why don't they call me in? I wish they'd call me in. Well, there's discontentment. I wish they'd call me in. That is something that I am doing in the moment. There's nothing actually going wrong. It's not like I had anything else to do. Just sitting there and I was early anyway. 
for my appointment. It's just discontentment was the experience of adding something to the situation that wasn't necessary. Adding, wanting things to be otherwise. The situation was just as it was. The situation was fine. Nobody was attacking me or hurting me or doing anything. However, adding, wanting it to be otherwise, that's extra. And I'm doing that. I'm 100% responsible for that. So maybe contentment is the situation without wanting it to be otherwise. Well, that sounds a bit simplistic, but in effect, and actually if we can do that, if we can inhibit the compulsive wanting things to be otherwise, what does that feel like? Because only when we feel what we feel do we really learn. Merely thinking things through can be very superficial and, and, and not really teach us what we need to learn. So. Now, having heard these teachings about the importance of cultivating forgiveness and, and cultivating virtues like contentment and, and so on, and, and we might be inspired to make effort in this direction, this cultivation. And then we discover that, for instance, like with cultivating contentment, like being contented in the moment, so as we're not caught up in discontentment and confused and making poor judgments in situations. If we want to experiment with this possibility, and we find it really difficult. There's all this momentum to want to change things all the time. Again, we need to reflect skillfully on that. Where is that momentum coming from? Well, if we have a habit of always following the impulse to change things, if we've somehow grown up with the idea that we're entitled to get what we want when we want, then of course we have that habit. It's natural, it's understandable, it's perfectly understandable that we have a backlog of always wanting to make things other than how they are. But it can feel so real, so right, so soon. I want to change the world. I want to change myself. I want to change this community. I want to change this person. If we followed that for many years, it feels incredibly normal. It feels like self. It feels like I want. It really feels like I want. It feels really important. Is it that important, though, really? So these encouraging these these teachings that we receive to contemplate the value of cultivating something, like for instance contentment, contentment that can be there on a deeper level when even on the surface level we're feeling discontented, can be a really valuable resource. Of course, right now we feel threatened. I do. I feel threatened. I look at what's going on in the world. This is. This is dangerous. All this power in the hands of people who, if they're not completely intoxicated, are pretty unaware. The imbalance and the injustice and the unfairness. Yes, of course it feels threatening and it can trigger a sense of discontentment. However, the virtue, the principle of contentment, if, if we've invested in it to some degree, it can keep us stable. Trying to maintain stability in the midst of a situation that's got so much change and so much volatility, so much despair for so many people, it's very unrealistic. It's like, it's like 
trying to climb Mount Everest without oxygen. I, I looked this up the other day. According to what I came across, it says that 200 people have climbed Mount Everest without oxygen. Most people can't do it. It's very dangerous and very, very difficult. And so it is in life, I, I would suggest, that there are some people, because of their past life accumulations, they, they arrive here in this human birth with already a huge amount of virtue and they don't need to cultivate a lot more. Wisdom is just going to arise for them. And those people, I would think, are, are very few and far between. For the rest of us, the intentional cultivation of virtue is essential. Thank you very much, Sajeev, for your attention.